Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, Kiora and G'day. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Antipodean Noir panel. My name is Craig Sisterson. I'm a journalist from New Zealand, though I'm based in the UK. It is my great pleasure and privilege to be on stage with four outstanding writers who all have ties to Australia and New Zealand, or, as it's called in the title, the Antipodes, because it's literally about as far away as you can get from England as you can. It's the complete opposite side of the world. So stories from the other side of the world. We're just going to dive straight in and let you get to know these wonderful authors and their wonderful stories. And we're going to have a great chat, and you're going to have time for questions at the end, and hopefully we're all just going to have a really good time. So buckle in. <laughs> and I thought we'd start off by um, perhaps each of you... Let's just start at the start. That's always a good place to start. How did each of you get into crime writing originally? Because some of you are newer to the genre, some of you have been for quite a while. And I thought, Christian, perhaps we'd start with you, yeah. since you're the kind of the freshest face yeah, yeah, and the newest you. author. Careful. Hey, oh, sorry. So, the newest, <laughs> the newest to, to, to the crime writing. The freshest face is fine. I, oh, I like yeah. yeah, it's fine <laughs> for you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you come about to write The Nowhere Child? And like, where did it come from that I'm now going to sit down and do this crime novel? I didn't set out to write a crime novel. I wasn't kind of thinking, oh, that's what I'll do. I tried. Uh, this book was the, the, the fifth book I tried to write, and the second one I finished, and the first uh, I thought was anywhere you know, good enough. So for me, it was about the story, and uh, it came about from this um, sort of weird uh, conversation with my uh, nan, who is 97 years old, maybe, no, older now, 90, I think she said her 99th birthday, uh, and she has dementia. And I was having one of these very heartbreaking conversations with her where I, um, you know, I'm Christian, I'm your grandson, that's your daughter, Kira, and all, you know, these, these sort of awful conversations. And I began to um, sort of uh, obsess about uh, memory. I sort of thought, how does memory work? She has these lucid moments, but then they're gone. And now, I, now that I'm a published writer, I can call it research. But what I used to do <laughs> was just procrastinate. Uh, on the, I'd get obsessed with these things and procrastinate. And so I started looking into memory, and I came across this... Um, uh, this kind of theory called, the, it's called the K theory. It was the original title of the manuscript and, and it's basically just to really beat it out. I know we were meant to do short answers for this one. Um, uh, just to, just to really, really beat it out. Um, uh, so I'll be taking the rest of the hour. Uh, no, um, you know, really quickly, it sort of states that, decay theory states that when you uh, create a memory, you create this thing called a neurochemical trace, which is sort of um, just a thread that you tug on to access that memory. But over time, if you don't access it, that thread will fray and break. So you can't access the memory any anymore, but it's, it's a whole thing thumping around your head. And I sort of got fixated on this idea, and then I thought... Um, I I'm sort of into true crime. I listen mm. to a lot of podcasts and all that sort of stuff. And so I think that's why my mind went here. But I thought, what if, oh, what if there's a memory that's, that's trapped in my head that would change who I am? And I very quickly thought, oh, what if my parents weren't my parents? What if they were my kidnappers? And then I thought, oh, that's, that's the story. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking for the rest <laughs> of the thing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one of the, I mean, there's so many great things about the Nowhere Child that I really enjoyed, but you, Can you one, name, one name of the things all? you layer in is that kind of idea of like the Pentecostal church and the, the kind of cult-like churches in the US. And interestingly, Stella, because your return to crime writing with the, with the hidden room after yeah. you'd mm. kind of kind of went dabbled, dabbled with literary and historical <laughs> fiction and all these acclaimed things, and then we kind of pulled you back to the dark side after 12 years, was The Hidden Room, an outstanding novel, and we, we will talk about that a little bit later, but I wanted to go back further to how you first started with the Saz Martin series, because yeah. you were quite groundbreaking. It was you and Val and yeah. others like that that it, were writing lesbian crime fiction before anyone else was really writing. doing it. Lesbian and bisexual women who were sexy, who were dark, who were mean, who shagged men, who killed people, <laughs> who were really groovy, who were really sexy. Some of them were Russian. And then, um, <laughs> and everybody went, oh, no, that, that, you can't be doing that. And then 25 years later, a man wrote a book about that, and they called Made Killing Eve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
It's, it's what happens, right? Uh, there were a few of us in the late 80s, I was in the 90s, who were writing these phenomenal, mm. sexy, brilliant young women. And until the men started doing it, girl with dragon tattoo, mm. killing Eve, no one paid any attention. Now I can't tell you the amount of TV people who go, so those first books of yours. <laughs> in 19, I'd always thought I wanted to write a novel and mm. I thought I wanted to write a magical realism novel. And I have done since, but so I tried writing several novels when I was working much more in theatre in my 20s. And um, I, 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 I type really badly, but I, my handwriting is worse. <laughs> and when I moved in with my wife, she, this is how I wrote my first book. She had an Amstrad computer, an old-fashioned <laughs> Amstrad dot matrix printer. They went... Anyway... Because there was a computer, I could edit mm. much mm. more than by hand. And I, I do most of my work in the edit. Mm. Just, I don't, we talked about this last week. You know, Jane's a, a proper plotter and, I, and I'm really not, I'm just rubbish. And I just, <laughs> and I write it and then I spend all the work in the edit. And I knew that when I had access to a computer and could edit easily, I'd write. And I wrote my first novel thinking I was writing a love story, but it started with a dead body and it had a private detective. <laughs> and so Serpent's Tale sold it as a crime novel. And it was, you know, lesbian crime when people weren't doing that very much and sexy, hot, groovy young women. Mm. Now I'm in my mid-50s. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and and I was it was astonishing, and 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 people people were really excited because it felt groundbreaking. Mm. And actually, what was really nice for me was that Mike Ripley, Maxim Jakubowski, Marcel Berlin, all writing in all the ma the big fat mainstream press in 1994, all went, "Wow, this is new and mm -hmm. and different." And so that got me started. But I, I hadn't meant to be a novelist, and I hadn't... I've never intended anything. I fall into things, and I'm so lucky that people let me do it. Just really <laughs> lucky. It's a really fantastic series. You should dig, <laughs> it, dig it out, the Saz Martin series. Um, and, I mean, it would have taken you, like, three days to print the manuscript. <laughs> the top matrix printer. The first, it's still printing. The first Saz Martin book, Calendar yeah. Girl, is only 70,000 words, and it took seven hours to print. Oh, my God. <laughs> seven hours! <laughs> <laughs> um, over, over here in the UK, we, we have this uh, really cool thing, the CWA does, the CWA de Debut Dagger, if any of you guys have heard of it, for unpublished authors who can kind of put in their manuscripts and get some feedback and all these yeah. other it things. It started the year after the first Saz Martin Yeah. Came out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we've seen people like Louise Penny and Amir Anwar and lots of other, uh, Mark Brandy from Australia came mm. through that as well with Wilmera. And there's some really cool authors that come out of it. In Australia, Christian actually won one called the Victorian Premier Literary Unpublished Manuscript Award. But before you won it, this lady yep. here, Jane Harper, won it. With, and this is a, open to all kinds of books, not just crime novels. And we've had a couple of crime novels Thank you, win it in recent years and kind of come out to the world, which is outstanding. And so for you, how is that with Curtis Brown, of course, and then that, kind of working your way through to getting the drive from concept to publication and deciding to write an Australian mystery. Yeah, so, I mean, I'd, um, I'd always wanted to write a novel, really, I think, you know, for a, a long time. I, I mean, I'd been a big reader as a child, and um, it had been something I'd, I'd really always wanted to do, but I wasn't really sure how to go about it. So, um, after university, I went into print journalism, um, and I worked full-time as a print journalist for 13 years. And um, it sort of got to the point where I think... Um, you know, for me, it was. It, it, I realised I wanted to write a novel enough that I was able to kind of let go of what would happen afterwards. Because I think if you think too much about the statistics, you know, about who gets published and um, you know how hard it can be, it, it can be really paralysing and quite off-putting. So I was able to kind of make that mental switch and put that aside, and just think I'm just going to try and write a novel, you know, just so I can see if I can do it and try and use it almost as a a kind of writing technique exercise. Um, and I think because of that, I was able to um, just focus on writing the kind of book that I really wanted to write, and I thought it's something that I would like to read. So I decided to write something set in Australia because I think the landscape's really, you know, really um, kind of a gift for writers. It's very diverse, it's you know, beautiful, it has that kind of brutality, though, that means it's quite easy to get in trouble quite quickly, which is great for books with a bit of mystery and suspense. And then I wanted to write something with that bit of mystery and suspense because those are the kind of books 
that I'd like to read. Um, so I, I kind of pulled together this idea for this um, for the dry, which was um, about um, a sort of uh, sort of rural farming community that has had you know sort of years and years of no rainfall, and the pressure is taking its toll on the entire community. And the book opens with a, a, the tragic death of a local family. And um, yeah, and then from there, really, um, as you said, like I, I, I was working on it. Um, I set myself a deadline because I knew, as a journalist, I worked really well to deadlines, and I knew this unpublished manuscript prize happened every year around the same time. So I set myself um, just a challenge to finish a draft. Actually, it was a third draft by that stage to enter, mm -hmm. with the hope of getting maybe some feedback. And then I won the competition, and then from there, got the agents and the publishers interested. So that was really great. Yeah. Fantastic. It's such a good read. And I think, Vander, interestingly, you started with uh, your, your Sam Shepard series is set in Dunedin, which is a city at the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. Um, but the very first tale, Overkill, was actually also a rural crime novel mm. where she's like a singular cop or a singular investigator like Aaron Polk, kind of trying to work out this family-related tragedy um, that's happened in the south of New Zealand. And interestingly, you've recently been long-listed for the CWA um, John Creasy Dagger, the first novel, which is fantastic, uh, which is kind of comical for us, because you actually wrote this over 10 years ago, but it's finally come out over here, and you've like redone it, and it's been re-edited. And what's that experience been like starting out um, back then, and then kind of reworking your debut so many years later? Uh, it's been odd, yeah. <laughs> uh, but a fantastic opportunity. Um, so. That first novel uh, I set in a very small town, and one of the reasons I did that was that I wanted my um, police detective to be sole charge mm. and have to make all the sh calls herself. Um, and also, you know, there was just something about small towns and how they're hotbeds <laughs> of, of gossip and everything like that, but people are really, really good at hiding and keeping hold of their secrets. Uh, but, yeah, the opportunity to... Um, update a wee bit, because, you know, in 10 years, technology... Technology has mm. gone way beyond what it used to be. So in, in the first novel, um, you had you know, fairly clunky cell phones. Now everyone's got a smartphone. So you have to have a really good think about, OK, there's smartphones that have got GPSs. How's that going to affect how the person's going to act? But fortunately for me, I could update to smartphones and hardly have to change anything. But the reality in rural New Zealand is that the, the coverage is still crap. <laughs> 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 uh, there, there, there are still pockets where there is absolutely no cell phone reception whatsoever. Yeah. So, um, so that wasn't an issue. But the other wonderful thing for me um, was that um, I, I love to write with a sense of place. And I don't know about you guys, but when I was first um, published, I was told, or even when I was writing books, I was told, oh, no, you've got to make them less New Zealand. Mm. You've got to make them less New Zealand. Oh, overseas, overseas buyers or readers won't like it if it's, if it's you know, got New Zealand stuff in it. Um, but for me, to have this opportunity where my wonderful publisher, Karen, at Arenda Books, said, make it more New Zealand. And I'm like, hallelujah. <laughs> um, so I've been able to put a lot more Kiwiisins in it and put a wee bit of context around it. And that's been a, a real gift. And it's certainly cemented Sam Shepard back in my head. And loads more toffee pops. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Full of toffee pops, though. Yeah. I wasn't paid for, paid for the product placement, by the way. I just want to mention that. I mean, probably the main reason that toffee pops are in there a lot is because, you know, that means I had to do research. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to ensure that the quality of the toffee pops continued over yeah. a long period of yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. They're biscuits. You're dedicated Choc to your work. Chocolate and caramel little biscuits. Yeah. But very nice. Should dig them out. Um, I love the fact that all of you have written uh, novels set in small towns yeah. in rural areas because I really like that kind of crime fiction as well. And interestingly, because we have the traditional classic village mystery mm. that kind of comes from England and, and places mm. like where we are now, and that kind of isolated community, they're all contained together. But the Australian and New Zealand rural mysteries have a different edge to them. It's probably similar to American ones as mm. well. And there's kind of a... I wanted to talk about the frontier yeah. kind of sense that I think Australia and New Zealand and some other countries like Canada and that have. It's kind of being on the edge of the world, being on the edge of the former British Empire. Mm -hmm. and, and our rural landscapes are quite different to the British rural landscapes. Um, and I thought, Stella, perhaps you could talk a little bit about that, because you've recently yep. written your first novel out of 16 set in New Zealand. I mean, one says yep. one touches on New Zealand, mm. but the first one set there. And what was that like for you, 
returning to New Zealand landscapes in the writing and bringing them out for a British audience. And writing it as Naya Marsh. At the yes. Same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so HarperCollins uh, brilliantly asked me if I would like to write, to complete a Naya Marsh novel um, uh, of which she'd only written about 5,000 words. And, um, and I jumped at the chance with terror <laughs> because it's a big mantle to take mm. on. But um, what, where she'd set it was in a rural setting by a river mm. on the plains. Mm. And for, you know, that's the Southern Alps as the backdrop for that. And look, I love Britain, people, but <laughs> they're not mountains here, all right? <laughs> they are hills. Yeah, mountains are rocky at the top and have <laughs> snow all the time. And these mountains are massive, they're beautiful, but they're immensely foreboding. Mm -hmm. And they're terribly strong. And the water that comes off them, including in midsummer, can be vicious. And so having the opportunity to set something, where, and also because it's a Noah Marsh novel set during World War II, mm. there's a sense of being on the edge of the world, mm. a world that is at war with soldiers who, that, in her original bit, um, are there recuperating from scarlet fever, but also a sense of feeling that because they're on the plains, backing on the, in the foothills of the mountains, they're also on the edge of the civilised world. Mm. And actually, I think, and I apologise already to Chris because I didn't get a chance to read his book, but I have... Yes, a confession before we came out. <laughs> very recently read both Jane and Vanda, and I think what we've done, and I think it is extremely Antipodean to... You know, crime fiction often has setting mm. as, a, as a character, mm. but we've got weather as a character <laughs> yeah, as well. And I know that's one of the ten rules and you're not supposed to have it. <laughs> but we've got weather as a character because in those places, it so matters. Mm. You know, it's, it's oppressive, it's dangerous, and particularly if you're a frontier person, as, many of, as all of the people that we've been writing about are, if the weather goes wrong... Your life might be in danger not just from the villain, it's mm. also from the elements. Mm. And that's just delicious to write. Yeah. Mm. I think that's, that's something, Jane, that in all three of your books, both your two Aaron Falk ones and the, the recent standalone, The Lost Man, is that there's that sense. And in the first one, it's the drought, afflicting <laughs> the, the farms. In the second one, you've kind of got the rainy, hilly, kind of more New Zealand mountainous kind of <laughs> weather north of Melbourne. And then in this most recent one, you've got these barren farmscapes where literally the neighbours are four hours plus drive apart. Your closest neighbour, you would have to drive for more, hours and hours and hours to get to your closest neighbour. The, the, the landscapes and that, and obviously the sense of weather plays a big part in the kind of the death at the start of it as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, particularly for um, Lost Band, because I live in Melbourne, which is sort of coastal urban um, area, so Lost Band is set in, um, you know, in, in outback Queensland, and sort of the term outback gets bandied around quite a lot, but, you know, the outback is quite a specific geographic place, and this is, like, true, true outback. So I had to do quite a lot of research um, for this book, because it's so different from where I lived. So um, I did... Um, I read, like, a lot of memoirs of people who kind of lived up there and where possible I then spoke to the authors, and I ended up... Um, get in touch with this um, really interesting guy. It's a guy called Neil McShane, and he's, he's written a book called Outback Cop, which is um, worth getting your hands on if you're interested in that kind of area. Um, because um, what he did was he, he lived in a small town called Birdsville, which is sort of well-known for being nothing, really. It's just kind of a pub and a cross street, and that's it. And he, um, he policed an area the size of the UK all on his own for <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> so um, that's the kind of region we're sort of talking about in, in, in The Lost Man. So I, um, I was lucky enough to um, uh, sort of be introduced to him, and I flew up to Queensland and met him um, in this other outback town where he let now lives. He's retired, which when I got there, I honestly thought, gosh, this is like, wow, this is very remote. And then I realised, actually, compared with Birds, it was like a bustling metropolis. You know, <laughs> it actually had, like, two shops, you know, rather than none. And, um, and anyway, so Neil um, really kindly um, sort of, you know, met me. And then um, he and I, well, he, dro he drove, and I sat in the passenger, and we drove on a bizarre sort, sort of epic road trip 600 miles west across the outback. Wow. Um, while he, in his 1996 Toyota Land Cruiser, while he told me his <laughs> stories and answered the questions. Um, and, you know, and I think, and then when I got out to Birdsville, he introduced me to a lot of people at like the nurse and the, went out to some cattle stations. And I think, you know, it was interesting because when, before I went up there, I'd, um, I, had, I did have quite a clear idea of this sort of the plot and what I wanted to happen. Um, but I thought, 
I thought, if anything, I might have to kind of slightly push the boundaries in terms of how, you know, extreme the dangers are, because, you know, it's a mystery and you want, you want sort of that level of suspense. Um, and, you know, when I got up there, um, the thing that really hit me was how I'd actually, if anything, I'd completely underestimated it. Wow. And, you know, you, you hear these really, really very tragic stories about, you know, young, healthy guys in their 20s, and they make a few mistakes. They haven't got the right supplies, or they haven't got the shovel to dig their cars out of the sand. They haven't told anybody where they're going. They leave their cars, and they're dead within hours. You know, mm. and that's how extreme it is. And I think that was, um, you know, it was, it was a really sort of interesting sort of part of the research for me. Because yeah. Yeah. I get the feeling that sometimes, um, because we're Australia and New Zealand are part of the Commonwealth, we're often thought of as uh, we, we're these former British outposts uh -huh. at the end of the world. But that, it's a very there's a lot of things that make us quite quite different. And I remember a New Zealand singer songwriter who's quite famous once. Uh, did a best of album when I was growing up, and he, he said something along the lines of, I'm not a British person living at the other end of the world, I'm a white-skinned Pacific Islander. Yeah. And because I think there's, there's senses where we're connected and we have links to Britain, and, and then there's also senses which are, are very different and perhaps aren't even grasped by Australians and New Zealanders, let alone British yeah. people as well, of how different they are. And the sense of humour I've often found, like when I started travelling to the States or England, just little phrases, little things you do, and you don't even realise, um, you, you thought it was normal or universal, yeah. mm. and you don't. And did you kind of, when you were writing your book, Christian, did you find yourself trying to decide how, because it starts in Australia and then goes to Kentucky, and it's kind of small town, but did you have to think about how overseas readers when you were going through the process, how they would see it and what yeah. you have to translate and whatnot? Yeah, one of the things... Um, uh, so, yeah, half of it's set in Kentucky, uh, mm. this little small fictional town. Um, and the reason it is is because uh, one of my other procrastinations was I, I was really into, um, still am, which will make me sound like a crazy person, uh, but I was in, really into... Uh, Pentecostal snake handling, which mm. for anyone who doesn't know, um, <laughs> I'm going to say into I, I, as a as a I you know I like to look at it. I don't I, I'm not here to convert anyone. You, you only said brought that, you, you know, only brought seven snakes in the exactly case, exactly so. yeah. But it, but they they um, they worship God by handling venomous snakes, rattlesnakes. Mm. They they drink poison. They handle scorpions and all this sort of stuff. And it only takes place in two or three American states, southern mm. states, and Kentucky was one of them. So that's sort of why it was there. I knew I wanted to go into that world. But when I started to um, think about setting something there, writing something set in America is sort of almost like writing something, especially nowadays, set in. Uh, Narnia, you know, it's such a it's such a bizarre uh, world, and it continues to get it continues to become more and more bizarre. Um, so the challenge for me was really uh, making it feel realistic and not what um, you know. I was raised like a lot of people raised on American pop culture, mm. one of my favourite books and music and all that sort of stuff, uh, comic books, and uh, so the, the challenge for me was to write something that was authentically American and not what I had grown up with or not that extreme kind of Narnia version of, of, of America there is as well. So that was a really tricky thing. Um, and, you know, I've been over there a bunch and we had, of course, uh, American authors go through, American editors go through it to make sure there's little things that still didn't translate. Like, for example, um, my brother, I've got two older brothers and one of them has this... Um, really affectionate name uh, for me, which is uh, Piss Shit Sookie Boy, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and I thought, oh, I'm going to use that for this. So these American characters, oh, the older sister calls the younger brother Piss Shit Sookie Boy, and they had to change it to um, Piss Shit because Sookie didn't yeah. translate, you know? So things yeah. like yeah. that, yeah. And there is one mistake, too. Uh, a couple of Americans have said... Um, we know lemon trees don't grow in that part of Kentucky. So, uh, yeah, so th th besides that, it was... Oh, yeah, because I mean, in New Zealand, every, when we were growing up, it's like every house had a lemon tree in the backyard. Yeah. Every yeah. single house. Yeah, me too. <laughs> exactly. yeah, you like, pee against it. You get your fish and chips and stuff, and you go to the lemon tree in the backyard. We don't do the salt and vinegar thing. We do kind of salt and lemon juice. It's kind of the New Zealand and Australian kind of fish and yeah, chips. Yeah, it struggled to grow on the volcanic plateau, but we yeah. did have one. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. And uh, Vander, I mean, how have you, because your books, the, these kind of great kind of detective tales, but there's a really kind of cool balance between darkness and humour in them. Like mm. Sam's a very 
funny character, not in a comical way, but there's that real kind of just sense of a, a cool Kiwi gal, or yeah. an attitude of a cool Australian girl, it's kind of similar as well. But how have you kind of brought that out now that you're coming to a broader international audience in terms of the humour and things like that? Um, I haven't actually even thought about it in terms of coming to an international audience. Yeah. Um, it's just, I think, it's one of those inherent things with Antipodeans is that I think what shines through with that humour is that we often come from a, a um, perspective of optimism. Mm. And because we tend to be optimistic and happy um, on the whole, we folk, um, that sense of humour comes through all the time. And I also wanted the, a balance there too. Um, I don't particularly like to read myself um, crime fiction that is relentlessly dark. I think you mm. need those little perks of humour coming through, just to sort of make a, oh, that's a relief, okay, I've had a little release, <laughs> now I can delve back into the darkness. Mm. So um, it was really important for me to um, pop that in there, and it was just such an inherent part of her as a character, um, it just sort of came through, it wasn't conscious at all. That's very cool. Um, Stella, I was thinking with you, because you had this um, kind of well-received, well-reviewed, and you won two CWE Daggers for your short stories as well. So kind of award-winning crime writer for a period of years, and then you, you went and did lots of other books and lots of other writing yeah. for 10, 12 years. And then you came back with The Hidden Room yep. um, before the Nye Marsh book. Mm -hmm. um, was that a case of just having a story that was a crime story? Were you missing crime? Were you drawn back to it? Was it just this was the first crime story you'd thought of? Yeah, or? it was that. It, yeah. I, mm. I just hadn't had any crime-ish novels in my head yet yeah, <clears throat> uh, for a while, and then I did. And um, The Hidden Room was clearly a crime novel, uh, more of a psychological thriller mm. from, the, from the first moment I thought of it. And as it grew, it became more so, and more dark, and, you know, and, and even though none of it is set in the Antipodes, it is set in the fens here, so the land really matters, mm. and in, a, you know, an, an occult mm. in the States, <laughs> in the <laughs> desert. And I grew up on the volcanic plateau in the middle of the North Island of New Zealand, so I understand a big, long desert road. Um, and I just, I, all I'm capable, I'm really, I'm, I think I've got a couple of publishers in the room. I am just so shit for publishers, because all, <laughs> all I'm capable of doing is writing the next story in my head. I can't do a pattern. I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. When HarperCollins asked me to do Money in the Morgue, I said yes, just because it was such a delicious challenge, mm. with no real certainty that I could achieve it. And I also said to them, you're allowed to tell me it's shit, and, and <laughs> you won't do it, if it is. And luckily, it wasn't, or they didn't think so anyway. <laughs> and people have liked it. But I, I like, I just like new stuff. And so for me, it's about finding the new stuff, what's new for me to write. And I have to say, though, and I don't suppose there's an awful lot of literary or magical realist novelists in the room. The crime writers are the nicest. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely. Mm. Really. And, you know, you can tweet it if you want, but don't say I was being mean about the <laughs> other people. There's something about our genre and the literary snobbery about this genre, the absolutely absurd literary snobbery, because, mm. you know, there's so many crime writers are such astonishingly good writers. Mm that I think is, helps us come together. Mm. And it helps us be nice to each other and pay attention. And we, we make the effort to read each other and to praise each other's work. And that's a lovely thing to be around as a writer. Really yeah. lovely. I love, I love that. I've got no basis for comparison, but that, it feels very yeah. uh, like a big warm hug. Everyone's super mm. nice. Yeah. 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 It's great. With yeah. Team Crime. Team Crime. Yeah, Crime. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first time I came to Harrogate or to Thiexton was 2012, and I came over from New Zealand that time. I was here for a friend's wedding up yeah. in Middlesbrough, and this was the weekend before, so I rolled it into one trip because Val McDermott and Simon Koenig and people who I'd uh, met in New Zealand had told me about how great this festival was. And in New Zealand and Australia at the time, we didn't have any crime-writing festivals. They've only recently cropped up in the last couple of years. We'd have crime sessions at a literary or arts festival. Mm. And it was just such a different vibe here. Yeah. Um, and I've seen it at other, like, started here, but then I've seen it at other crime festivals. It just really is a sense of collegiality. And, mm. and thanks for all of you, because you're yeah, what really. makes that. It's the readers as well. who make it's that. The readers possible. and the writers yeah. and stuff. So that's really awesome. I, I got some interesting things I want to talk to the rest of you about, but just before we move on, Stella, I was very curious because you wrote these very groundbreaking 
kind of lesbian private eye novels mm -hmm. in the 90s and early 2000s. And then when you came Including back... Including some heterosexual characters too, people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in terms of the protagonist, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was a groundbreaking yeah. thing. And when you came back with The Hidden Room, um, which is, you know, 20 years after yeah. you, you started, um, it wasn't so... You, the main relationship was a lesbian relationship, but that's much more normalised now yeah, yeah. And, and much more out there. What was that like for you writing that now compared to writing about those kind of things 20 years ago? How much had changed and how much yeah. of the changes played in to your writing of the book itself? Well, um, I, I was a lesbian at both points, yeah. so that helped. Um, Sense of constancy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think what, I, what was interesting to me about it was thinking, oh, now I'm writing these two women and their teenage kids, and actually that is... It's not a, it's not a fully a norm, mm. but it's nowhere near as big a deal mm. as it was back in the day, certainly in the early 90s. Mm. And it's only the early 90s, but we forget how much, particularly, you know, for queer people outside of the metropolises, mm. metropoli, it's changed. And these are two women living in a small village with their teenage kids. And it is just so much more ordinary. And what was so lovely was being able to write about these gay characters in the 90s, I wrote about being gay as if it was ordinary because I'm just not interested in coming out stories. You know, mm. that's who we are. It's part of the world. But this time, I was allowed to do it genuinely. And the only people who commented on it hilariously, all these lovely reviews, and they all said, um, basically starting off with, Martha and Laurie are a very happy couple with three teenage children. Daily Mail review. <laughs> Great review, though, so I'm not, not slagging it off. Um, <laughs> Martha and Laurie are a very happy same-sex couple with three teenage children. I think it was just because they were worried that their, their readers might pick it up accidentally. <laughs> get a bit of a shock. Um, but, yeah, the, the mainstreaming of, of a wider realm of sexuality is so exciting. Mm. It's thrilling to me. Mm. And um, for, for you, Jane, I was curious, because you've written this really outstanding standalone, which I personally think is your best book yet, yeah. and mm. The Dry was it's fucking great. amazing, so this is crazy. <laughs> but are you going to, do you see yourself doing more standalones? Are you going to come back to Aaron Falk and stuff like that, who was in the first two books in The Dry and Force of Nature? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think when I was planning the book, um, I knew really early on it was going to be, Lost Man was going to be sending out back. Um, and, and so I knew also... Um, really on that probably it wasn't going to be a fork novel. Um, because I think it's really important to, you know, find the best characters to tell the story. And um, in this case, I mean, unless, I mean, Fork is a, you know, he's a, he's a sort of financial detective. He works in Melbourne. He's got quite a desk-bound job. So, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't think of any sort of real authentic way to get him up there. I mean, it would have to be some sort of, like, convoluted, like, four-wheel driving holiday or something, you know. <laughs> where, and it just, it just wasn't, I knew it wasn't going to work. So, um... So really early, I kind of embraced the idea of doing this as a standalone. Um, and, um, you know, and I really enjoyed kind of the opportunity to, I think, focus on the new characters. You know, the Lost Man is set around, um, like, pretty much an immediate family, which, um, which has three brothers, one of whom is found dead in the opening sort of scenes. And, um, you know, and I think, um, you know, it sort of is, is quite a, an authentic reflection of the, you know, the sort of the, the, the makeup of communities out there, you know, it is a sort of very family-run business, generational often, and, um, you know, you've got families that are kind of um, forced to sort of be quite tight-knit because there really is nobody else around. So I, I really enjoyed exploring those um, dynamics in this book, and I think that was definitely, you know, the right choice for the novel. Um, but having said that, I think, I mean, I mean, I owe a lot to Fork, you know, I mean, he's been great <laughs> to me, really, and, you know, and the drive's been made into a movie now as well, which mm. is really good, so be a lot more people kind of introduced to him. And so I think, um, you know, for sure, like I would sort of see myself returning to him at some point, but it's just about finding that right yeah, vehicle for the character, I think. How, how involved have you been? Because Eric Barner is starting this. Yeah, yeah. And they started filming earlier this year. Didn't they? Have they finished? Yeah, so, so film is completed. So, um, mm. yeah, so it's really, it's great. So Eric Banner, who is um, kind of a, a national treasure for us, mm. you know, in Australia, and um, a really, you know, excellent actor, and I think a really inspired choice for the role has... Mm. Yeah, being cast as Aaron Falk, which I think is, is really great because he's the kind of person that, you know, people naturally sort of get behind and he's got a lot of warmth and, um, you know, and um, so, so they've, they've started filming in the summer months, which was uh, between like February and April this year, and um, that took about eight weeks. So um, I'm not actually directly involved. It's very much like when you sort of sell the rights, you know, you, you, it's like selling a house, like you don't own them anymore. Some, someone mm. else is 
you know, someone else's project. Um, but out of courtesy, you know, they, they keep in touch and let me know what's going on. So they invited me up to actually go to see the filming, which was really exciting. Mm. So that was great. They filmed it in um, Northwest Victoria, which is a kind of geographical area where the book was set. Um, so me and 12 of my closest friends and family got to <laughs> drive on out there. And, um, and um, I'm sure it will be too blurred to make any of us out, but um, when it comes out, if um, we're in the funeral scene, I'm sitting behind Barb and Jerry Hadler in the second row of the church. So we had sat to, so we did a funeral, and then we did the wake and um, sat around holding you know, glasses of wine and you know, plates of lamingtons and things. And, um, yeah, um, and I'm sure you won't make, be able to make out any of us, but it was really, it was really great to see it. So they're, they're finished filming, they're editing now, and the distribution date hasn't been determined yet because that's down to that will be down to the distributors, but I think they may be hoping for next year. Mm. There was no temptation to be involved in the screenwriting of it yourself? No, so there wasn't for this one. I think because it was, it was optioned really early. It was optioned actually before... Um, it was optioned by Reese Witherspoon and a, an Australian producer called Bruna Papandrea um, back in sort of 2015, so before it actually hit the shelves. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that stage, you know, I mean, I was really new to the business and... Um, you know, I had, you know what I mean? Like I was still kind of going, the dry hadn't even come out yet at that stage. So I was sort of happy enough to, you know, absolutely leave it to the professionals and give them the creative freedom to um, work with it. Um, but having said that, The Lost Man, uh, because it is a standalone, it's a different characters, um, that is a that is a separate contractual issue. So I have actually written a script for that one, cool. oh, which cool. um, the agents will be handling. Oh. So there you go, reveal, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Exclusive to Harrogate. Um, Because I was thinking about... Because all four of you have written these outstanding novels, and they're all terrific, and they're very different but very cool. And but you all you all four of you also write in other areas of your life, um, whether you've written academic stuff and Jane's been a journalist and Christian, you do some screenwriting and mm-hmm. some film and TV and Stella like a lot of plays and some radio plays yep. and stuff as well, mm-hmm. I believe. And I was wondering kind of the cross fertilization of the different types of writing and how they've played into your novel writing um, when you've done a different style of writing and different techniques and whether you've found yourself bringing any of that into your later novels and things like that. And perhaps Vanda, because you took a break and did a yeah. PhD. She did a PhD. She's also Dr. Vanda Simon. <laughs> she did a PhD on the poisons of Niamh Marsh. Well, in fact. That was a little part of it. It was yeah. the um, communication of science and crime fiction. Yeah. Mm. So it was like a marriage of the perfect things for me. You know, it, it satisfied my inner nerd mm. wonderfully. Um, but also, you know, it tied in this other life I have as a crime writer. And, and the inspiration behind it, or one of the impetuses, was that um, Nio Marsh is very much um, a New Zealand icon, but in the current day, it's almost like people have forgotten she existed, which I thought was incredibly sad. But because this woman, her um, achievements were extraordinary. And uh, no, she's one of the, the four queens of crime fiction. And you know, 32 crime fiction novels. Mm. Um, and at the time that she was writing, it was very much what Stella said earlier, which there was this huge cultural cringe. So even in the modern day, Nia Marsh is known in New Zealand more for being a... Um, director of Shakespearean theatre than for being this world-famous, um, Edgar Award-winning uh, author. Mm. And, so, it, and it broke her heart as well, because yeah. the, 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 the genre of snobbery was massive mm. for her, including in the 50s and 60s, you know, yeah. when she was just doing so well, in New Zealand specifically. Mm. And she's got this wonderful part in her autobiography where she talks about her friends liked her despite her being a crime writer. <laughs> And you know, it was just heartbreaking to read. So you know, part of me really wanted to do something that was going to bring and showcase her again. And also for me, because um, what I was looking at with my um, PhD was the accuracy of mm. write, um, writing, you know, where the readers care. You know, does the audience, do you care if the science that we have in our fiction is accurate or not? Um, and you know, part of what I discovered was yes, you do. And from a writer perspective, um, I know that I care because if you make one, <laughs> one mistake, you will get email, yeah. even over the most obscure little things. So Look at your lemon tree. Yeah. yeah. Your lemon yep. tree, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, made the mis- I made the mistake in my first novel, so I set it in Matara, which is a very, very small town, and in the novel, um, Sam Shepard goes from Matara, and I put up to Gore. She uh. went oh, no, up to Gore. And I had someone email me to say, oh, no, we would say that she went across to Gore. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, <laughs> I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but in New Zealand, you often say you're going up the road, even if it's down the road. You're, yeah, like, yeah, but, it's, yeah, yeah, but if you're local, that's like going through to Glasgow from yeah. Edinburgh, right? Yeah. You wouldn't say, oh, you know, it's the through. Yeah. People have their thing. Yeah. So, now I was looking at accuracy, and Naya was perfect for that because um, she took great, great care in her research. Um, she, you know, very, I love very the idea there. that that's such a funny example. I love the idea of re someone reading that and then putting a dog earring it and going and writing you an email about it. I know. That's so funny yeah. to me. Yeah. 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 Sorry, keep I, going. I keep thinking that so people funny. like that must have such extraordinarily exciting lives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, I, I actually, as a reviewer, years ago, I got an email from a reader about my review of a book. Wow. <laughs> and in terms of, they, uh, it was in a magazine in New Zealand, and it was, a, it was a Lee Child novel, 61 Hours, came out several years ago, and there's a big gigantic explosion near the end of the book, and it's not a spoiler, so sorry, but there's, a, there's just a gigantic explosion that has certain effects, and I kind of said that I thought the book was really good, was, you know, Lee's always very readable, he's a great author, uh, enjoyed a lot of things about it, here's what I liked, kind of thing, and then I got this very short, very, very polite email from, from a, a reader of the magazine who just went, um, I usually like Lee Child as well, he's a fantastic author, but uh, wasn't the issue that the explosion couldn't have occurred exactly how Lee described, <laughs> or how Mr. Child described, didn't that just spoil the entire novel for you? <laughs> and I kind of can't understand how your review can be so positive given this. <laughs> That's really interesting that you say that, because one of the comments that I got coming through in my research was um, that if people found an error in the science and the novels, mm. it actually um, broke their trust with the author for uh, everything, from and, and it was a trust issue, and yeah. and therefore it meant that they did not trust the author as far as to plot, yeah. characterisation, uh, or anything else. I think as well. unfortunately it does, and yeah. um, and I would rather go. I'm sure people will allow me some leeway because I can't know everything, but I do think when somebody's really bought into the book mm. and they're really in the world that we've created, if something pings out to them as unreal. Yeah. Going back to your question about other, other writing, mm. like with theatre work, which is my background, you can be watching an amazing show, but if an actor over here and the scenes here is doing something slightly off, mm. you're reminded that you're in a theatre. Yeah. 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 And I think that's what happens when something goes like that to a reader. They're reminded they're reading yeah. Yeah. rather than in the world. Actually, Jane, I'd be really curious because Outback to me sounds like a really specific mm. environment to be in. Do you get people... Have you had people email you and say, oh, no, you got that? There are um, only six of them living there. So <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I haven't for this one, and I think it's because I really did, like, spend a really long time on the research, you know, like, I mean, because it was so unfamiliar. Um, I went up there and I really made an effort to sort of... So it was interesting because when I went through the editing process, obviously the editors come back with their notes and, and a lot of things where they, they sort of put, like... Just sort of, you know, general sort of surprise, sort of question marks, like, really, is this is this accurate? You know, because it's all these kind of things that you would, you, you never think of. I mean, um, things like, I mean, up, up there they have some really, you know, some of the real top kind of world's most venomous snakes. Um, but, yeah, in the medical centre, they don't have any anti-venom at all um, for them because it's really expensive and it has a short shelf life. So, you know... Like tough luck. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I said, what happens when you get bitten? And, you know, everybody's kind of... You know, nobody really gave me a good answer, <laughs> I have to say. Um, you know, so it's little things like that and like how do radios work. I mean, I had questions like, you know, can you have a private conversation over radio? No. Like, how do you get your food? How do you educate your children? Mm. What, you know, you go into their kitchens and on these stations and you walk in and it's like walking to like... You know, it's like walking to like a Tesco extra or something. Yes. You know, it's it's like I was really surprised by the quantity yeah. of food that they was. Oh. I mean, twenty yeah. kilo bags of rice and mm. you know, there's shelves and shelves of tinned food and and things. And it's it's um it's that kind of thing. Um, yeah, that was sort of the reason why I went up there really because it's that kind of thing. Those real kind of domestic um, and day to day elements, like what they keep in their car. I mean, that was a big one. This fact that these cars are so like their lifelines. You know, and so that's when people get in trouble because they underestimate and they think. When you know you say to most people who live in you know kind of urban environments, you, know, you need to take some water, they'll pack a couple of liters. When actually you're talking like you know you need 20 liters and you need tins of food and you need you need your shovel and you you know you yeah you're towing rope and everything like that. So um, it was all that kind of stuff that I really wanted to get accurate. So I spent like a really long time kind of and also the emotional aspects as well. It's a very isolated setting, so it really has a big impact on, you know, people's, like, mental health as well. Yeah. Mm. 
And how much did you research? Did you because you touched on before, Chris, and you've been to the states a lot. But have you? How much of you did you visit small town Kentucky, which is a kind of its own different world? I think yeah. sometimes people don't realize every state in the U.S. is almost like its own country. Yeah. It's not a single country. Every state has its own little things. Yeah, you know, I visited the states a bunch of times, but there was mm. one time in particular uh, I went there. My sister used to be uh, married to an American guy, so we went to um, my family and I went to. Uh, we started in Pennsylvania, this little town, Wilkesbury, and we drove all the way down south and back up again. And um, yeah, we drove one of the places we drove. We drove through a lot of small towns in Kentucky, and you get this feeling where, um, you know, you're there and you're thinking, oh, the hospitality is amazing, the people are so nice, this is beautiful, but we should definitely leave before it gets dark. <laughs> you know, like it's this really kind of, um, it's this really eerie kind yeah. of balance, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of what, um, yeah. But I mean, I did a bunch of research. Uh, uh, similarly, I had, um, you know, a bunch of snakes in my book mm. as well. And... Actually, I still get e I get a lot of e emails from people saying um, I was so far fetched, and uh, I was like, it's all real. I, I dialed back some of the more extreme stuff. I just, um, you know, if someone sends me a nice email, I'll reply with a de decent reply. But if someone sends me something like that, they just get a novel. I'll spend a whole day. There's links and there's all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, so, so so I did a lot you of. You need um, to write some more books. And yeah, then you'll yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I did. Um, yeah, a, a load of research. Uh, um, I can't remember the original question, but I'll just keep talking. Um, I did a lot, a lot of question, a lot of research into the snakes. Um, what was the original question? It was he was, about Craig was asking us about other about our other, other writing. writing. Oh, that was ages ago. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. We, we've been. Oh, yeah. we skinned. It's a very antipathy. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly though, <laughs> yeah. my other writing, being theatre writing, mm. it has never been particularly useful. I mean, a bit, but until the Naya Marsh, she writes, uh, she writes yeah. in three act Theatric. plays, yeah. Yeah. and so the fact that I had any understanding of that concept made such a difference to writing it. Yeah. And she writes so beautifully in three act plays as well. Mm. So it was. Again, like I think one of the amazing things about Marsh is, and we've touched on here with just the Antipodean thing in general, was her landscapes. Yeah. But also, she was brilliant at the minor characters. Some yeah. of her fellow peers at the time had these amazing singular yes. heroes. And she had a kind of more ordinary hero, and mm, Al yeah. Inspector Allen. But the depth and the, the character interplay, she was That's just a genius theater. at. Mm. Yeah, she and it's a theatre and, and, and in New Zealand, as, mm. as Vanda was saying, she was mm. famous for her Shakespeare directing, mm. directing large casts, often of students, mm. in which, to go back to that, that um, little bit of comedy before yeah. you get to the dark again, Hamlet's Gravedigger is really important. You've got to have mm. that bit of comedy and lightness. It's like Jane in The Lost Man. Mm. Those two little girls, mm. not giving anything away yeah. in this book, <laughs> as well as providing some, some poignancy, also provide a bit of lightness around some mm. really dark stuff. Yeah. And she did that beautifully. And that's why she had so many really good small characters. Mm. Yeah, right. jo with the humour thing, jo the jokes don't need to be as good either because you're in this, you're right, this, this is a really bleak, terrible part, you can just do a kind of a dumb yeah. dorky joke, yeah. like, a, like uh, something about a fart, yeah. and it's like, so suddenly funny, so that it's, it's much easier to... Um, yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. I, I tried to when one of the many novels I attempted was a, a comp, you know, I tried mm. to make something, write something funny, and I was just terrible at it, but I find that it's much easier being a little bit funny when it's, you're... you're, yeah. you're yeah. Really good point. It's just the contrast. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, we're having a lot of fun up here chatting, if you can't tell. <laughs> um, it's actually time for us to open it up to all of you. So, does anyone here have a question for anyone or all of our panel? Oh, yeah, we see some hands up there down the back. Thank you. Um, Jane um, Harper, I love your writing, and that's not detrimental, I hope, to the rest of you, but you're the only author of you guys I've read so far. You've got to say one nice thing about each of us. <laughs> yes. and then... I, I like, she, she said so far. So far, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't put me off, Christian. Yeah. Um, but you actually admitted you, you live in Melbourne. And I think you're originally from the UK. So you actually come from an urban environment. Are you going to write an urban novel? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, really. And I think, um, you know, maybe, um, I think, you know, if, if, I had, if I had an idea that I think would really work in an urban setting, you know, I absolutely would. Um, I think, you know, just for me, those settings are so important. I do quite like a good kind of isolated setting in terms of, you know, just the... Um, 
I don't know, I guess the, the kind of the visual aspects and the, the things you can kind of bring into it, um, and also the fact that it forces the characters to kind of interact in ways that you don't necessarily get in an urban environment. Um, you know, and I, and I think, you know, it's really important that the, the setting kind of drives the plot as well. So, you know, it, it forces characters to behave in certain ways or it turns them into to a certain type of person. Um, you know, and when I'm thinking about the kind of plot and the setting, I mean, my, my goal really is that by the end of the book, um, that that story and that plot couldn't be set anywhere else. You know, the setting is so woven through it that it, it, it has to have been set there. So I think, you know, yes, if I, if I had kind of, you know, an idea for a book that was... Um, you know, that would really lend itself to that kind of setting. You know, absolutely, yeah, it's something I would consider. I saw several hands go up, so I'll let someone else have a crack now. Not in the least bit relevant, <laughs> but I think many of us would like to applaud the response of all New Zealanders to last Sunday's thriller, <laughs> which arguably was a crime. Uh, I don't know whether you can make a book out of it. <laughs> Um, yeah. Can I just say, categorically, we are so proud of our New Zealand cricketers. Yeah. They yeah. were amazing. And, and it's kind of, well, at least one New Zealander got to lift the trophy because Ben Stokes was bloody Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always relevant. We're Antipodean. Sport matters. Yeah. Yes. Landscapes, humour. Sport's the other thing. There's a really great Australian crime novel, actually, Rules of Backyard Cricket. Oh, by yeah, John that's Sarong. a really good one. Yeah. People should, if you like cricket and you like crime, get Rules of Backyard Cricket by Jock Sarong. It's, it's brilliant. It was actually Edgar shortlisted or Dagger shortlisted a couple of years ago. Um, so you were talking about before Stella about how collegial the crime community is. And that's something that's been over here in Britain for decades, mm. like with various festivals. Thixon's been going for like 17 years now, I believe. Lots of others popping up. It's a relatively new thing, I think, in New Zealand and Australia. We've got a strong history of crime fiction with Naya Marsh, Fergus Hume, um, Alan Davitt and Mary Fortune and others that go way back to colonial times. But it's only in the last 20, 30 years we have this growing sense of a crime fiction community. Melbourne's a bit of a hotbed. Dunedin's a bit of a hotbed as well. Yeah, where Dunedin's you are. dangerous. Yeah, with <laughs> Liam McElwinney and others. And how much do you sense that um, yourselves in the cities you live in and Stella from afar, how much do you sense still a connection to the New Zealand crime community? Um, perhaps you want to tell us about Dunedin and your feeling there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, um, actually, that's the funny thing about crime writers. You know, we, we, we like to... Um, to get together and drink, and in Dunedin we have our, uh, our little own Dunedin crime writing community. <laughs> and so Liam McIlvany and I, we're having what we call the Dunedin Crime Writers Association road trip <laughs> over to Harrogate. Uh, but you know, I I didn't actually realise it when I first started writing Overkill, mm. um, beaving away in my house that. Two doors along was Paddy Richardson, another oh, crime writer, who yeah. was also sitting there writing crime fiction, and we didn't actually know that at the time, and discovered it afterwards that you know, um, Bowne's was a hotbed of crime, mm. yeah, in, in, in the sense. But certainly, um, the not just the Dunedin, but the New Zealand whole crime writing community mm. um, altogether, and uh, are really warm and supportive of each other. Um, it's, it's been wonderful. Yeah. And because I mean, Sydney's the biggest city in Australia, but I get the sense that Melbourne's the heart of crime writing in Australia. Definitely. From the Definitely. outside <laughs> and stuff. And there's so many, along with yourselves, there's so many other great authors coming out of there as well. I know, obviously, Peter Temple, who was kind of a leading light and stuff and mm. stuff as well. But Sarah Bailey and, and many others, kind of in recent years. Um, Emma Viskic, whose stuff's brilliant as well. Mm. I mean, do you sense that when you're living in the city that there's a real kind of, there used to be this cultural cringe about crime writing, but is it sense, a more of a stronger sense of community now and stuff? Yeah, I think so. I mean, not necessarily. I've always um, written in sort of isolated isolation. I've never had been part of a writer's group or anything like that. So for me, it's um, coming into this sort of world, I didn't really know uh, what to expect, but I find everyone, uh, Melbourne and uh, Australian writers in general, I guess that because of I've met most, more and more of them, uh, but they're um, supportive to the point of being, you, you feel so, uh, you know, an example is um, uh, Candace Fox, mm. you know, she's this amazing writer, and I got an email recently from a, a crime festival in Sydney, and they said, you know, invited me to go, and I said, of course, and they said, good, because Candace Fox was in touch, and they said, we, she said, we have to get you. So there's kind of like really mm. super supportive, honest, uh, yeah, little, little support group, I guess. It's nice. 
And how do you feel, Jane? Because in some ways you've kind of become the modern leading light mm. of antipathy and crime fiction. And I don't mean to embarrass, but like you're, you're creating a pathway for others and more and more Australian and New Zealand novels, thanks to your success and how you are, have kind of flowed through as well. A little bit with what's happened with kind of Ian Rankin and Val McDermott 30 years ago with Scotland, a little bit what's happened with Henning Mankell and Stig Larsson and Scandinavia, is that there were other authors beforehand, but there was something that captured the broader attention and now others follow through the mm. door. How's that been for you, being part of a community and seen as a bit of a leader in the community as well? Oh, that's been very kind of you, Craig. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, I agree with Christian. I mean, in terms of the sort of the support you get from other writers and um, I think from, particularly from booksellers and... Um, you know, this uh, the broader sort of community um, is is really important. You know, I mean, it's it's it's, it's all very well to kind of write the books, but you do really need people to to get behind them, and that's a huge range of people. You know, it is other writers, mm. and um, and I think Australians have always been really good at like supporting other Australian writers. Mm. I think within you know when you're over there, like you get you do get a really strong sense of that. You go into the bookshops, and the, the mix is different from what you see when you walk into, you know, Waterstones and things over here, um, because we do really support, um, yeah, the local authors. Uh, but it's really, really, you know, it's really great to have things like this panel, for example. I mean, this is a really wonderful opportunity for all of us to kind of talk about our work. And, um, yeah, and I think, you know, this, the kind of New Zealand and Australia, they are really such, like, great places to set crime novels. I mean, there's so much opportunity and there's so many great stories that can come out of there. Um, I think it's really wonderful that, you know, more and more of those stories are getting shared. Mm. You know, it's true. Uh, what you know, what you're saying about you, Jane. You you really were a leader. I mean, I, I sort of. I'm at the very beginning of my you know novel writing career, but I really did just try to copy you. <laughs> honestly, honestly, it's like into the same competition. Oh, honestly, it was, it was yeah. So I think I've, every time I had to write something up, it was you know with echoes of the dry or you know or is that sort of. I am glad that you did set the Nowhere Child in, in rural Kentucky though, because if you'd done the snake handling in rural Australia, have, everyone yeah. would have been dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the snakes that you do not want really wouldn't have worked. <laughs> so. There's something else though that I think is really important about this, and I think that. What, what, there's something that's changed in Britain. I, so I was born in London. We moved to New Zealand when I was five, and I've lived back here in London for 33 years. When I first came back, there was an assumption that Australia and New Zealand were the same country. <laughs> Seriously, when you know the distance from 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 Auckland to Sydney, not let alone to Perth or, or you know rural Queensland is the same distance as the distance from London to Moscow. They are not neighbours. <laughs> um, there's a vast sea between them. And I think what's really exciting with this uh, re-looking re at our work that's coming from this passion for crime writing is that what we see in modern crime fiction anyway is social realism. Mm -hmm. And we're getting it particularly in crime writing across the board in America, in Britain, in the Scandinavians, and in the Antipodean work. And we are at a time politically that is pretty scary for mm. many of us for very many reasons. In Britain, it doesn't really matter what side you are on Brexit, things are difficult. Mm. What is interesting to me is that we are able to tell genuine social stories of real people and we are telling them from the truth of the lands where they are. And that feels really important. And that's the thing that crime fiction does across the board, mm. but it's really brilliant that it's shining out from these nations. I think it's really exciting, mm. really hopeful. Time. Probably got time for one more quick, oh yes, down the front here. Thank you. Um, Peter Corris died recently, yes. mm. um, and I think this would be uh, the, the ideal location for some reflections on Peter Corris's place in Australian crime fiction, writing for 50 years. Kind of in the modern scene of Australia, kind of like the last 30 years or so, 40 years going back even further, you'd say that it's really Peter Corris and Peter Temple that led the way, and then others like Michael Botham and Jane and others have, have really broken down the doors. Um, Peter Corris, a little bit like Paul Thomas in New Zealand, brought an American kind of style of kind of the hard-boiled um, private eye investigator and he brought it into the Sydney world. And it was very Australian. It was a very Australian version of that very American kind of crime writing. And he's written, I actually lost, it's like 40, 50, it's a, an extraordinary mm. amount of novels. And he was um, just such a humble man and so brilliant. And I was fortunate enough to interview him for an Australian magazine actually about seven or eight years ago. And he, he said himself, um, and I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember the exact quote, 
but he said himself that he was so pleased that there were so many Australian crime writers now. And he said it was so good because when he started in the seven, mid, early mid-70s, I think, he was the only one. And he was so pleased that there were so many though he kind of wishes some of them would bugger off because they would <laughs> because they'd give him more space because there were so many good writers now, he didn't have the whole pie to himself, is what he said. But no, he was a brilliant, he was a brilliant author. His Cliff Hardy novels, I think it's 40 to 50-something novels, um, really well worth um, seeking out. And you can see how Australia and Sydney's changed from the 70s um, right up to he was publishing right up until he, he passed away in the last year. And so you've got kind of a, a 40... 40-plus year period of the changing face of Sydney in Australia told through crime fiction, which goes to the exact point Stella was making about the social mm. novel. It's a, it's a great way. Um, yeah, really worth digging his novels out. He was a great man. And it, it was a sad loss. So, mm. Sorry, I hope that... <laughs> so. uh, we have time for as many questions as you want <laughs> in the signing queue in the tent. I hope you've had a good time. I've had a great time. Thank you so much to all of you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Yeah. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.